0: Well, good morning to all of you. It's so good to be with you here today. Um, I always have to make a comment when Daylight Savings Time happens because um, either, I don't know if it's if we started it or ended it. I'm not sure. I never know. Um, but, you know, we get the extra hour of sleep. You're all looking great today. But I know that those of you with small children, um, they don't, obs- they're like Arizona. They don't observe Daylight Savings Time, right? They're like, they just opt out of it. And so it's, it's always, I remember the, just the, the way it felt in like high school when you get an extra hour of sleep and then when I had kids and how that changed, everything changed. And then, but we get them back in the spring and it's fine. Uh, it'll, it'll all work out in the end. Listen, I want to start with a, a question this morning for you and it's this. What do you do when you don't know what to do? what do you do when you don't know what to do? You're at the end of your resources. You've tried everything you know, and, and you're coming up empty, and you're in a situation where you're feeling a crisis moment, a moment of fear. I remember a moment like this from when I was a, a, a new parent. My wife and I brought our son home from the hospital, and he was a little over, um, you know, the, 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 it was a year probably after that time. I think he was a little over a year old. And so we're figuring this out, figuring out the parenting thing. And um, our son was, had a fever. It was the time of year where things like that happened, and he had a fever. We'd given him a Tylenol and sent him to bed. And then we woke up uh, to a different cry than what we were used to hearing, right? And you know if you're a parent, you know all the cries. That's like an upset cry. That's a mad cry. That's a sad cry. You know, whatever it is, you know, you know the different cries. You learn that. And this cry was one I'd never heard before. And so my wife and I knew that we'd put him to bed with a, with a fever that was kind of on its way up, giving him Tylenol, hoping that he was feeling better. And what we found when we walked into his, his room was our son was having a seizure. And it was a moment of, of we were terrified. We didn't know what to do. We were, we were scared. We, we picked him up. His arms were shaking. And it was a, it was a terrifying moment as a parent. And I ask you this question, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Like, we, we were so terrified by what we were seeing that we called 911, fire department shows up to our place, and he gets an ambulance ride to the hospital. But the other thing we did was we prayed. We just, God, please help our son. We don't know what's happening, and this is, this is so scary. And it's this moment as a parent, if you're ever in a moment like that, or if you've ever been in a moment like that, you know those feelings of just feeling like powerless to, to do anything to change what's happening. When you think about moments like that, and I'll tell you the end of that story in a moment, so just just hang on. I want to stay here in this, in this feeling for a moment. When you don't know what to do, what do you do? And for you, it might not be something like that. Maybe it's a financial crisis. Maybe it's a, it's a concern. You have some kind of fear. There's uh, something going on in your life, and you just don't know what to do. You, like, there's options of things that you can do. You can exert your control or power on different situations in some ways, but then you reach the end of that. And you're really left without any resources to make a difference in whatever this crisis situation is. And we've done everything we, need, we knew how to do as parents. You give him the Tylenol, you know, you, you um, maybe put a cool cloth on his head to make the fever go down, something like that. And what we found out is something I wish they would have told all of our, all the parents um, when you're a new parent. And there's something called febrile seizures some of you know about what this is, but when, you're, when your child, when your young child has a fever that spikes quickly, they can have something called a febrile seizure that looks terrifying but is relatively harmless, we discovered. And he, they took him to the hospital, did a bunch of screenings on him, and it turned out he was perfectly fine, but we just needed to, moving forward, look out for these things called febrile seizures. So How many of you guys have heard of those before? Or maybe any, any have a kid that had them? It's like relatively common. A third of children apparently can get these febrile seizures. So that's a lesson for all of you, you know, future parents or new parents. Um, but also, I wish someone would have sent us home. We took him home from the hospital, put him in the car seat for the first time, and on the way out, they should have grabbed me by the arm and said, Hey, just so you know, there's something called febrile seizures. You know? If it happens, don't panic too much, because that, that's what happened uh, to, to him. And he, of course, he grew, grew out of that, and it's relatively harmless, like I mentioned. But it was this moment of, of terror and, and, and panic and concern. And, and it, it turned out fine. But in this moment, we sought. God. We said, God, please help our son. We don't know what's going on here. This week, we're going to meet two women in the story of the, the, the lives of Elijah and Elisha. This series we're doing right now is a church called Faith in a Time of Unbelief. This is week six of our series, and we're gonna, we've got a few more weeks. We're going to carry this series on through the end of November, and then we'll move into our Christmas uh, sermon series. But we meet two women with three different kinds of challenges. Two of them are a crisis. One of them is kind of a private concern um, that, that they had that didn't, didn't really make public until God revealed it to them. But we, the, the, there's a financial crisis, a woman who's in financial crisis that leads to a crisis in her family. And we meet another woman who has this deep private pain that kind of goes unspoken until God steps in and meets the need that she has. And then also that same woman then later has this family health crisis. We're going to learn from their lives and the, the way that they responded to God and then how God responded to them. To do that, we're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 4. So if you have your Bible um, on your phone or a paper Bible, go ahead and open that up, get ready for that. It'll also be on the screen behind me, but it's always good to follow along with something right in front of you. So 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1 in just a few moments. I like to recap a little bit of where we've been each week when we gather for those who are new or those of you like me that forget, you know, kind of where, where we've been. So a little recap is helpful. We've been talking about Elijah and Elisha for the last, again, this is week six of this series. And we're talking about their battle, Elijah and Elisha's life calling for both of them is to restore the worship of the true God to the nation of Israel. Israel's divided as a a country. There's Israel and Judah, these two separate nations, where before there was only one nation. And Israel is led largely by kings that do not follow the true God. And it's reached this point during the ministry of Elijah, where the whole nation is being turned away towards this Baal worship. Elijah's wife Jezebel is from this place, this other country, where they worship Baal instead of the true God. And she's brought in this whole system of worship and the prophets and Uh, of Baal, and they're leading the nation away. Elijah, through this time of preparation, he's prepared for this moment on Mount Carmel, where there's the showdown between the true God and the false God. And Elijah wins, God wins, in a resounding fashion by sending fire from heaven to consume this sacrifice. But it doesn't turn out the way Elijah thinks, and Elijah goes on the run. Rather than the nation turning back towards God, he's now on the run. His life is in danger. And Then Elijah spends this time on the run. God restores him. He's in in despair, but God brings him back and lovingly works with him through his concerns and fears and then brings him back into ministry and service towards him for another 18 years of his life. He begins walking with his protege, Elisha. And Elisha's, we, we told the story of how Elisha began following Elijah last week. And then years passed, something like 18 years passed with Elisha and Elijah walking through life together, doing ministry together. Elisha's the servant of Elijah, but also his apprentice in learning from him and walking with him. And then, as we covered last week, uh, Elijah and Elisha come to the River Jordan. They miraculously cross the waters. And then Elijah, in the greatest mic drop moment ever, ascends into heaven in a whirlwind. And Elisha begins doing the ministry that Elijah did. Elisha's prayer request was that he might have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And that, in fact, happens. Elisha immediately begins performing miracles, and and one of them we're going to read about, or several of them we'll read about in today's passage. So 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 1 through 7. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few, and then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside." So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons, and as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest." When we read about the miracles that God performs through Elisha, often they're meeting very practical needs. There's one that just seems somewhat random where someone borrowed an axe from somebody and they're chopping wood and the axe head flies off the handle of the axe and goes into the water and there's this moment of panic like, oh no, that was a borrowed axe, what do I do? And they go to Elisha and Elisha makes the axe head float through the power of God. Like it's such a low stakes (laughs) miracle but it was meeting a practical need in that, in that person's life. And this is something that was meeting a very critical need in this woman's life. But it's the kind of ministry that Jesus did, where he's going around and meeting, there's people in poverty that need help, and he's helping them by providing food for them or healings for people and, and things like that. We, we know from Scripture, depending on how you count the miracles, Elijah did something like 14 to 16, depending on, on what you consider a miracle performed by Elijah. Elisha, who prayed for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, performed double the amount of miracles, something like 28 to 32, again, depending on how you count them. This woman that is asking for help from Elisha is in a precarious situation. She's in a very vulnerable time during this culture. She's a widow, which would have put her um, in this place where her husband who provided for their family was no longer with them. And not only that, but she was also left with debt that her husband had taken out. We don't know the story behind that. Was he trying to provide for the other prophets or, or something? But she had these sons to take care of. Because of her death, though, she was going to lose her sons. That During this culture at this time, this was the way of dealing with debt. You'd be in, sold into servitude until the day, the day of Jubilee, Or the year of Jubilee, where you'd gain your freedom back. But this was how things like this were dealt with during this time. My wife and I used to watch The Office, and uh, there's an episode where Steve Carell's character, Michael Scott, is concerned about his finances, and he thinks he's gonna have to declare bankruptcy. But what he thinks that means is that you just stand up in a public place and shout out, I declare bankruptcy. And that's not how that works, and that has to be explained to him. But, but I'm thankful. No one wants to declare bankruptcy, but I'm thankful for that kind of protection in our modern-day environment, that we don't, it's not, if you are unable to pay your debts, we're blessed to live in a time where you don't have to go to debtor's prison or be sold into slavery to pay your debts. But during this woman's time, this was the option. She was going to have to give up her children for years of servitude uh, until this debt was paid back. And she does what we should do when we meet a financial crisis or any other kind of crisis, and she brings it to God. She brings her need before God. And in that time, I guess things are a little bit different. You could certainly pray. She could have prayed, and maybe she was praying at that time. But to bring a need to God for her meant, I'm going to go find the man of God, and I'm going to bring this need to him, and I'm going to ask for his help. You know, in our time, because of the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit, this room is filled with men and women of God, right? We get to have the presence of the Holy Spirit within us, and that makes us a man or woman of God if we're one of Christ's children and part of his family. But she brings her need to to God via the man of God. I'm presenting this need to you. This is the concern that I have. And I've talked about this in, in... I guess months and maybe years past, that this idea of worrying about something and letting it be something that you're always thinking about because you're concerned about it, and you're so worried about something that you're constantly thinking about it, but then you forget to ever pray about it. And I realized that I was do- there were certain things like that in my life where I was just constantly worried, this kind of low-grade worry about whatever it was. And I'm like, if, I'm- if I care enough about it to worry about it, maybe I should care enough about it to pray about it. I don't know just an idea. And so I began trying to remind myself of that point, that if I care about something enough to worry about it, I should care enough to pray about it. She does that. She brings her concerns to God by way of the man of God. And then God works in a powerful way. You know, she has something that is, she, she has a jar of oil. Maybe this was, it was probably olive oil, probably, maybe even anointing oil. Maybe it was what her husband used in his ministry. And it's a small container of oil. The, the, the Hebrew word, it, we, it gets translated jar of oil in our translation. Elisha says, go borrow containers, borrow vessels from all your neighbors. Go around to all the neighborhood, ask for containers. And the, the container would definitely be something much larger than a jar. Go get containers. And then the supply matches the number of containers that she goes and collects. And the oil just keeps pouring out of this little jar until all of these big containers are full. This is a miraculous provision of God. And the oil's enough to meet the need, and the oil's enough to provide for their future even. Not only to pay the debt that they had, but also to give them something to live off of in the future. There's an old song we sang when I was a kid um, growing up in church, and it was this, little is much when God is in it. Little is much when God is in it. God can take something insubstantial and small and use it to accomplish something much larger than you would think it should be able to accomplish. Little is much when God is in it. I think another idea, another principle we see from this passage, is that often, when we have a need, God will use things around us to help meet the need. There's a story from 1990, a 26-year-old man um, who was in a desperate financial situation. He decided that the way he was going to deal with that was to rob a bank. So he walked in. It was an armed robbery. He robbed a bank at gunpoint in Ottawa, Canada. And he, was, he made away with about $6,000 from this bank robbery, but he was quickly arrested. And they took his gun, sent him, to, sent him to jail. He was sentenced to six years in prison. Later, the Ottawa police who had seized the weapon began looking at the pistol that he'd used in the armed robbery. And they, found, they discovered this is not like a normal pistol. This looks very old. Let's do some research on this gun. And they discovered it was an antique and that this young man who had, who had committed this robbery owned a 45 caliber, caliber Colt semi-automatic pistol that was one of only 100 made by the Ross Rifle Company in Quebec City in 1918. The pistol itself was worth 100,000 dollars. So he had robbed a bank and made away with 6,000 dollars, holding a pistol that was worth 100,000 dollars. <laughs> If he would have known the value of that, he wouldn't have got himself into this mess. And there's a lesson, maybe I don't know. If you, if you, sometimes God meets the need you have with what you already have. Sometimes God will use what He has, what 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 He's already given us to do what He's calling us to do, and meet the needs that we have. When we talk about creation, there's this theological term. It's a Latin uh, word. These two words, ex nihilo which means that God created the world out of nothing, that God took nothing and made something. Every time you create something, you take pre-existing materials and then you fashion them together and you create something. But if you're a carpenter, you, you didn't create the wood, right? You get the wood. God made the wood and then you make this craft project or whatever it is that you're doing out of the wood. But God is the one that can take nothing and make something. But in our case, God often takes something that we already have and uses it to make something else and provide to meet needs um, and things like that. There was a group of scientists, I've told this story before, but I love it, a group of scientists who got together and they decided that humans have come so far with technology and science that they no longer need God. And so they, they decided together they're going to send a delegate to go have this conversation with God about how they didn't need him anymore. So one scientist came up to God and said, God, we've decided that we no longer need you. We have technology and all of our scientific achievements. We're to the point that we can do without you. So we're sending you away. We, we no longer need you. Thank you. And God listened very patiently and he kindly to this, this scientist. And after he was done talking, God said, well, you don't need me anymore. Okay. Well, how about this? Let's say we have a person-making contest. I'll make a person and you make a person. The scientist replied, okay, let's do that. But God added, now we're going to do this just like I did back in the old days with Adam. And the scientist said, okay. And the scientist bent down to pick up a handful of dirt. And God said, no, 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 you get your own dirt. <laughs> right. You get your own dirt. God creates things out of nothing. We create things using, using something that God's um, already given us. And God, again, God will often meet the needs that we have through what he's already given us. I love that this woman um, just had to be put in this awkward position of going around and talking to the neighbors and asking for the vessels, you know, asking for these containers, and it, this required faith, right? How do you have that conversation? Do you mind if I borrow the big container that you have? Um, and, and they say, sure, what do you need it for? Well, I, you know, I'll tell you later, you know, I'll, I'll tell you later what, I, what I'm borrowing it for. And, and just this and then it happens behind closed doors, right? They close the doors, and this oil just continues pouring and continues pouring. That she had great faith and believed, that, um, believed and followed the instructions, right? These simple instructions that she was given. And God provided in a powerful way. You know, Often we are tempted to have a very, a very scarcity mindset. People talk, describe something called a scarcity mindset where you believe that you only have enough to go around. That you gotta, What you have is very limited and so you need to hang on to it because you are not sure if you're going to have enough so you need to keep what you have for you. And that keeps us from being generous with other people. That keeps us from giving of our time um, and our talents towards other people as well. This scarcity mindset keeps us a lot of times from doing the things that God calls us to do. And this woman... Could have had that, right? I've got this little bit of oil. That's worth something. I'm not going to pour it into this container. I don't know how I can get the oil back in if this thing doesn't work out. She trusted in God and continued pouring, and God continued providing. People of faith should not have a scarcity mindset. This mindset should not describe us because we serve a very big God who's capable of providing for us out of his riches and his blessings, and he had, they are unlimited in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul's writing to the church at Philippi, and he thanks them for their generosity. And then he says in Philippians 4.19 to them, he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And in that phrase, you have this idea of the, the promise. My God will supply every need of yours. You also have this the provider mentioned that my God is the provider, and then you have the sense of his, the depth of his provisions, that according to his riches and glory, that our God with unlimited resources will provide for the needs of his people. If I told all of you in this room that I would pay off all of your debts, right, I'm going I'm to just wipe the slate clean for each and every one of you, I personally will pay off your mortgage and any of that student loan payment you still got from way back then. Uh, I'll pay off all those debts for you, credit card debts, I, I got it. He, you all wouldn't even get your hopes up, right? Because you'd know, like, you're not Oprah, right? You're, you don't have the resources to be able to do that. Like, Donnie, I've seen the car you drive, and your 2004 Toyota Corolla would not indicate that you're like a Bitcoin billionaire, right? We're pretty sure you do not have the resources to provide for, uh, for that need and to pay off all the debts. But when we think about God and his resources, right, this is unlimited, God has what we need. God will provide for the needs of his people. This happened for the woman and her sons. There's one other kind of point I want to make about this passage before we move on to the next few verses, starting in verse 8. And it's there's been a number of times over my lifetime where I felt like I was really tired or discouraged. Like I kind of felt empty, so to speak. Very little resources to give to meet my own needs. And then I hear about the need, a need that someone else has. Like, I'm like, I'm so tired, but this person needs groceries or something. Or this person needs to meet with me because they're going through a really tough time. And then in spite of my feeling low or feeling discouraged or feeling tired, I go, okay, there's a need. I'm going to go meet that need. And I meet with that person or I deliver the groceries to somebody's house or something like that. And the funniest thing happens. Even though I felt kind of empty... I actually did have something to pour out and to give to somebody else and to help them. And in doing that, I was somehow miraculously filled up again. Right, That God provided not only for the needs of the person that I was helping, but then God encouraged me in the process. And I think that's just like God to do that. Let's continue reading now. We're going to be in verses 8 through 37. We're going to read a big chunk of verses here. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem, where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So, whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that wherever he comes to us, whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day, he came there and turned into the chamber and rested there. And he called to his Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? And she answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, She stood in the doorway, and and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, O my head, my head. The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him, and, and when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon or sabbath. And she said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child laying dead in his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child began, became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. It's a dramatic uh, story here that starts with Um, a woman who decides to make room in her house for Elisha as he passes through their community. He would stop there and eat sometimes, but she's like, she discusses with her husband, they were people of great means, they had a lot of wealth. They said, let's make a room for him, let's prepare a place so that he can actually stay here, it'll be designated for him. And this hospitality, which is a a virtue, hospitality is such an amazing gift. So many of you are so wonderful at how you practice hospitality, inviting people into your homes, letting people stay with you, providing meals for people. That's a wonderful um, virtue and something that God's people have done and been known for for a long time. She practices hospitality, opens up her home, invites um, Elisha to stay there when he's passing through, and it opened the door for God to work in her life in an amazing way. This hospitality opened her up to this blessing from God. She was literally making room for God to work. There's this moment where Elisha and Gehazi, his servant, are so grateful for her generosity. Like, this is so amazing that she's done this for us. Like, what do you give someone who has everything, right? This is the discussion they're having. She's wealthy. She has no needs. They actually go, Gehazi goes and asks her, like, is there anything you need? Can we put in a good word for you with the powerful people that we know? You know, maybe your husband can get a position with the government or something, and she's like, I'm, I'm, I've got everything I need. Like, I'm with my own people. I've got everything I need. I really have no needs. And then Gehazi recognizes that she doesn't have a, a son. We don't think she has any children. The Scripture doesn't mention any other children. But having, not having a son during this culture would have been... Um, it's the significance of this would have, would have been more significant than even in our, in our culture here. This idea of wanting a child but not having a child would, would have been something that would have been incredibly painful for her. And it seems to be the case that when Elisha goes up to her and says, this time next year, you're going to have a son. And this is God's way of blessing you and, and paying you back in some ways for your kindness and your generosity. And her response tells us something about what this meant to her. She says, don't lie to your servant. Like, I've been so kind to you. Don't tell me lies. This seems to have been something that was very painful for her. That maybe a, an unfulfilled desire in her life. And Elisha says, you're going to have a son. And she, she says, I, I, don't, I don't think you should. She says, no, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. In other words, like, I can't take this. If you're going to tell me something that's not true, like, this is... This is cruel. Please don't tell me falsehoods. But her heart's desire is fulfilled. There's this miraculous birth that even though her husband is an old man, she's able to, she has a child. They have a, they have a son. And then the years pass when the child had grown, Scripture tells us. He goes out to his, with his father among the reapers. It's harvest time. And he's out there in the field. And then tragedy. Oh, my head, my head, he cries out. He gets carried to his mother and she sits on his lap or he sits on her lap sorry get that wrong he sits on her lap and it's a it's a, this part breaks my heart it's such a painful it's like my it's a, every parent's worst fear what happens in in verse 20 when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap. And the Bible that often spares details sometimes, it will tell you the, the essential things, but it gives us this heartbreaking detail that as he's sitting on her lap, he passes away. So she's holding her son's lifeless body, and she goes and puts him on the bed of Elisha, the bed that Elisha sleeps in when he's visiting there. And her response is, is so instructive for us because she doesn't prepare him for burial, which is what you would do if you lost someone during this time. She, she, it, it, within 24 hours, that person should be buried according to their culture. She doesn't do that. She lays him on the bed of Elisha, and she gets a, a ride up to Mount Carmel where Elisha's staying, and she says, we're going to go fast. And everyone's asking her, like, is everything okay? And her response, all is well. Yeah, all is well. And some commentators will say, well, she just didn't want to stop and explain what was going on with the normal pleasantries because she, she was on a mission. But I feel like she was saying something more than that, that really, really all was well, that there was this combination of two things, this incredible trust in God, but also this tenacious pursuit of God. Like, I'm going to pray to God. I'm going to ask God for a miracle in this situation. She was tenacious and trusting, both those things at the same time. And she goes as fast as she can towards Elisha. In the King James Version, her response to Gehazi about, hey, is everything okay with you? Everything okay with your son? Um, is everything okay with your husband? She says in our translation, all is well. But in the King James, it was these words, it is well. And those words would later inspire a, a song that's been sung by many generations in the church. And I want to tell you the story about the song, It Is Well With My Soul. Horatio Spafford was born in New York in the 1800s, 1820s. In Chicago, he became a lawyer and a a very wealthy man. And he was well known for his Christian faith. He was very open about his Christianity and what he believed. And he and his wife, Anna, were very involved in their church. And they were very hospitable. They would open their home to visitors regularly. They had a good friend named Dwight L. Moody, who was a world-famous evangelist. Um, that many of you have no doubt heard of. They were blessed with five children and a lot of wealth. They owned a lot of land, properties around Chicago. But in, uh, in, 18, in the 1800s, when their son was four years old, they lost him, Horatio Jr., named after his father, died suddenly of scarlet fever. Then just a year later, October of 1871, the, the great Chicago fire that's written about in our history books, uh, swept through downtown Chicago, and it left 100,000 people homeless. 300 people died in that fire, and it also wiped out a great deal of Horatio Spafford's wealth. He lost a lot of his properties, and that was in the days before insurance, and so it was a devastating financial loss to their family. Two years later in the 1870, 1873, Spafford decided that him and his family were going to visit England. D.L. Moody was going on a speaking tour over there and they wanted to go be with their friend um, and be a part of what God was doing in England. And so Horatio, because of some last-minute business details, had to stay behind while the rest of his family crossed the Atlantic on a steamship. He sent his family ahead, his wife and their four remaining children who were all daughters, an 11-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 5-year-old, and a 2-year-old. On the 22nd of November, 1873, while crossing the Atlantic on the steamship, their ship was struck by an iron sailing ship. And 226 people lost their lives when the ship sank in only 12 minutes. All four of Horatio Spafford's daughters died in that shipwreck. his wife anna survived they found her floating on a plank of wood unconscious but pulled her aboard a rescue vessel and then she made the continued the voyage over to england when they when she reached her destination she sent a telegram to horatio that included the words saved alone and he realizes that now he's lost five children all five of his children have have been lost Getting his message, he, he immediately, getting this, the message from Anna, he immediately left to go be reunited with her. And then on one particular day during the voyage, the captain invited him up onto the bridge and they said, according to my charts, this is the spot where your daughters were lost on, on the, in the Atlantic Ocean. Pointing to the charts, he said, this is the very spot where the ship sunk. And it's told, the story goes that Spafford returned to his cabin and he began to write the words to the song again, that had been sung by generations, it is well with my soul when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll. I can say it is well with my soul, even in spite of this. And he later wrote to Anna's sister that on Thursday last, we passed over the spot where the ship went down in mid-ocean. The water is three miles deep. But I do not think of our dear ones there. They are safe. Um, after Anna was rescued, uh, one of the pastors that were, was traveling with the surviving group heard Anna say, God gave me four daughters, and now they've been taken from me, and someday I'll understand why. Anna would go on to talk about her, her experience during that time, and, and she said she had been conscious during that time of grieving, uh, like a still, soft voice from God saying something like, you were, you were saved for a purpose. They did find their purpose later. God blessed them with three more children. And later they would go off into the Middle East to serve at a place where there was a lot of need. August of 1881, they left America America with a number of other people and they settled in Jerusalem. And they began to start a ministry there where they served the needy, they helped the poor, they cared for the sick, and they took in homeless children and they served there for the rest of their life. How can you say it is with my soul after such a loss. It's only if you can have the kind of hope that they had. The kind of hope in a God who is good. The kind of hope that, in, in a God that is, is able to put our hopes in, able to sustain our hopes, and able to hold those things up, and that we can trust in Him, and that even in spite of difficulty, even in spite of fear, even in moments of crisis, to say, It is well, or all is well. She does what we should do when we encounter moments of crisis, which is to pray big, bold prayers, to be tenacious in pursuit of God and asking for his help, but also to trust. And God blesses her with this amazing resurrection of her son. He gives her son back to her. When we're reading stories like this from the Old Testament and and, and trying to understand how to apply these to our lives, Scripture says the Old Testament, all the scriptures were given for our instructions. So these Old Testament stories were given for the instructions of all of us. And as we read the Old Testament as Christians, looking back with the benefit of knowing where all of this is headed, that so, this is pointing towards Jesus. This is bringing us um, the story of Jesus and the history of redemption. Jesus is the fulfillment of these kind of Old Testament shadows here that are fulfilled in the life of Christ. As we read the Old Testament as Christian Christians, scripture and understand it as Christians, we see a number of things that I wanted to point out. One is that there are a number of parallels between the life of Elisha and Jesus. I've said this in previous weeks, but their names are basically the same. Jesus' Hebrew name, Yeshua, and Elisha are essentially the same name. Their names mean God is salvation. Their ministries, Jesus' and Elisha's ministries, both start at the River Jordan. Um... They both raise a woman's son from the dead. That's the story we just read. They both heal lepers. We're going to read that story next week, the story of Naaman and the healing of Naaman. They are both betrayed for love of money. That's also a story we'll get to next week, at least in Elisha's life. We know it's Judas in Jesus' case. And remarkably, their deaths bring new life. Both of their tombs were a place where new life came from. Jesus, of course, his own new life, but providing salvation for others. And there's this strange and remarkable story about how Elisha's tomb brought new life. In 2 Kings chapter 13, I want to read you these. It's just two verses that are kind of thrown in there. Describes that Elisha passed away after many years of ministry. But then Second Kings 13, 20 to 21 say this. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. What? Wow. Like, they're they're giving the guy the burial. This guy has passed away. It's time to bury him. Oh, no, there's bad guys coming. They're just like, here you go, sorry, and then they walk away, and he stands up. He comes back to life. His... Elisha's death, his bones buried there, brings new life. Wow. Does that remind you of anybody? Jesus spent three days in the tomb, and, his, and then he triumphed over death. His death brought new life. And actually even more miraculous than what happened to that man. Because it's not just the physical death, right, that, that Jesus... We'll deal with in the future, in the resurrection, the the eternal life that he provides. But this spiritual death that we all are born into without Jesus Jesus came to resurrect spiritually dead people, which is a bigger miracle than a physical resurrection. Ephesians 2 4 through 5 talks about this miraculous work of God in salvation. It says but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved that's the offer to the world for spiritually dead people Jesus gives new life we get this as the verse says by grace we are saved it's a gift we could never do anything. to That man was just tossed into the, into the tomb of, of Elisha and landed on some bones. He didn't do anything to save himself. We don't do anything to save ourselves or to bring us back to life. We simply allow ourselves to be resurrected spiritually by Jesus. And then offer available for everybody, including any of you in this room or those watching online who have yet to receive Jesus. I invite you today to put your faith in him, to pass from death into life. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for um, this opportunity that we all have, Lord, to be a part of your family. Lord, and it's not because we're good enough or special enough or somehow deserving of your salvation, but as we've been saying this morning, it's your mercy, it's your grace that your mercy is more than our need. It can cover any need of anybody in this room, and Lord, for, for anybody in this world who needs salvation, you are so good to provide it. All we need to do is acknowledge our need of it. And so, Lord, I pray for anybody that's here today that has yet to do that, has yet to put their faith and trust in you. Lord, may they they invite you into their life even now as I'm praying. May they say yes to you. May they receive this gift of salvation. And then, Lord, for every single one of us, Lord, as we seek to follow you with our lives and we reach these times every now and then where we don't know what to do, what do we do when we don't know what to do? Lord, help us to turn to you. And help us to be to pray big bold prayers and to seek you continually with the things that we worry about and to put those prayer requests out to you and ask for your help with them. And then let us trust you. May we trust you, Lord? With um, Lord, give us more and more faith, Lord. May we be able to say uh, this: "It is well, Lord," because we trust you so much, because you've secured us a place in heaven with you someday. That changes the the equation here on earth, that whatever this earth may bring us, we can say it as well, because you are good, and we trust you. So Lord, I pray for the needs of people in this room, that they something very specific comes to mind when I talk about feeling in that, in that situation of, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Lord, I pray they would Lord, bring those requests to you, and know that you care for them, and know that you are good and you love them. And then meet those needs, Lord, we ask boldly. Lord, as we lift up our voices in in song to close our time together, I pray that you bless um, us and I pray that you would be glorified and you would be blessed by our worship. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, would you stand with me? We're going to sing together.